Let us, let us pray together, please. Lord, we bring ourselves before your throne of grace. We enter by your blood into the most holy place. And Lord, we talk to you now. We ask, Lord, that you would give grace, give mercy, help in our time of need. We need you to reveal yourself to us, and we know, Lord, that you will do so through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would feed your sheep through me, unworthy servant though I am, that you would speak words of life to your people. I pray as well, Lord, if there is anyone here who has yet to believe, to savingly believe, that, Lord, you would Draw them to yourself by your irresistible grace that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray against any distraction. We ask that you would help us to fix our mind on you and to give attention to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Every single one of us, every one of you, falls into one of two main categories. You're either saved or you are not saved. You're either in Christ or you are outside of Christ, you will spend eternity in heaven or hell. The writer of Hebrews knows this, and he pours out his heart to ensure the salvation of his readers. Hebrews is an apologetic in which the writer appeals to a Jewish audience through much use of the Old Testament scripture to embrace the supremacy of Christ as their great high priest through whose blood sacrifice they have redemption and through whom the one raised from the dead and ascended into the heavens and now seated at the Father's right-hand side they have direct access to Almighty God. The writer of Hebrews has three goals, I believe, in writing this letter. One of them, to encourage genuine believers. Two, to urge the unsaved to believe in Christ. Three, 
to exhort those in danger of apostatizing. Some were tempted to turn their back and walk away from Christ. Such unregenerate believers, false believers, if you will, needed to come all the way over to faith in Christ. Being aware of these three categories of people is helpful for our understanding of certain passages in the book of Hebrews. Please turn in your Bible to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, we will look at verses 19 through 25. The writer, whoever that person was, we don't know with certainty, is burdened for the souls of his readers, and he seeks to buttress believers in their faith while at the same time urging all others to believe in Christ. In our passage, we discover a summary of what we have and how to respond. We will consider two main truths regarding what we have, followed by three truths related to how we respond. So let us go ahead and read the text. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God. I am entitling my message, Responding to the New Covenant. You could call it Responding to the Gospel, Responding to Christ, Responding to uh, a New and Living Way. Either title would work. I've I'm entitling it Responding to the New Covenant, and we are wrapping this message around five truths to encourage a proper response to the New Covenant, to Christ, to the new and living way. Let us begin with truth number one. We have direct access to the throne of God. We have direct access to the throne of God. Hebrews 10, 19 to 20, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. The word therefore links what has been declared to verses 19 through 21. 
verses 19 through 21 is a summary statement, I believe, of everything that has already been written. Hebrews 1.1 all the way through 10.18 can be viewed as the in-depth treatment of Hebrews 10.19-21. It is the commentary of Hebrews 10.19-21. It unpacks it. Hebrews 1.1 through 10.18 is an apologetic and an exaltation of the supremacy and necessity of Christ. The writer shows how Christ is better than all of the prophets, better than Moses, better than the angels, better than Joshua, and it is implied that Christ is better than David. He is better than Aaron. Christ is better than all of the priests. We also learn that Christ offered a better sacrifice. Christ offers a better covenant. And so from 1-1 all the way to 10-18, we have an apologetic and exaltation of the supremacy and the necessity of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this and more is linked by the word therefore to the summary statement of verses 19 through 21. The writer's main point in verse 19 is clear. Look at it. We have confidence to enter the holy place. The word confidence is translated boldness in the King James. The word carries the idea of outspokenness, frankness, plainness of speech. It speaks of one being free to speak. Here, we have the freedom to do what to the Jewish mind seemed incomprehensible. We can enter the holy of holies into the direct presence of Almighty God and we can speak freely to him. The readers were already exhorted back in chapter 4, verse 16 let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In our verse today, we read again that we have freedom to come into God's presence and have an audience with him. I want you to draw a circle around the word we. We. The writer declares we have confidence to enter the holy place. Before, it was the high priest. Now, it is we. The holy place is a reference to the holy of holies. It was considered the most sacred area of the tabernacle of Moses and the Jerusalem temple. It contained the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized Israel's special relationship to God. The holy of holies was the dwelling place of God, as it was understood by the Jews. In Hebrews 10, 7, we read that in the Old Covenant, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. But in verse 10, 19, chapter 10, verse 19, Hebrews declares, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We cannot overstate how difficult this thought would have been for a Jew to embrace. We no longer need to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. 
Remember what Jesus declared to the woman at the well in John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We, that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus anticipates, and the writer of Hebrews reflects upon the new covenant that Jesus is talking about. Beloved, we have direct access to the throne of God. We have confidence. We have freedom. We have permission to enter the holy place anywhere, anytime. Now. The basis of our confidence has nothing to do with our own righteousness or worth. It is by the blood of Jesus. We can enter the holy place. We can approach Almighty God and have a relationship with Him by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1.3, we read that Jesus had made purification of sins. He did this through his own bloody death on the cross. In Hebrews 2.9, we read, by the grace of God, Jesus, what did he do? He tasted death for everyone, once again through the blood of Christ. In Hebrews 2.14, we learn that Jesus partook of flesh so that through death, through his bloody death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In Hebrews 2, 17, we are told that Jesus became a man to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Through the crucifixion of Christ, God's wrath was satisfied. The punishment for our sin fell upon the crucified Christ. In Hebrews 5, 8 through 10, we read, though he was a son He, Christ, learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The Lord Jesus was made perfect in the sense that when he bled his blood on Calvary's cross, the necessary sacrifice to atone for our sin was finally accomplished. Salvation was perfected through Jesus being crucified in our place. In Hebrews 7:27 we read, "He, Christ, offered up himself. Jesus offered himself as a one-time sacrifice for the sins of all who by faith believe in him." In Hebrews 9:11 through 12 we read about how Jesus has entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In Hebrews 9.28, we read that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, 
In Hebrews 10.10, we read, we have been sanctified, which means set apart and made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And if we jump ahead to the benediction in Hebrews 13.20, we read, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. The God of peace, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, perfects, he equips and prepares his saints for every good work through the blood of Christ. These verses remind us of the infinite value of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus bled his blood and died on the cross so that we might be forgiven for our sin and free to enter his presence, free to draw near to him. The writer of Hebrews provides further description of our new covenant access to God by describing it as a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is through his flesh. The word new is from a Greek word that originally meant freshly slain. The readers are to view Jesus as the one freshly slain. But he is living as well. He was raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. He is the living way who opens the way for us to have eternal life. In John 14, 6, we read Jesus proclaiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is life and the source of life, eternal life. And only through him do we have access to God the Father, only through him. And in case anyone misses it, the writer declares that this new and living way was inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. According to the Old Testament tabernacle and then temple worship, there was a veil that the high priest must pass through in order to enter the most holy place. He entered once a year and he was required to offer blood sacrifices for himself as well as for the sins of the people. And you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. Only the high priest, only the high priest was permitted to pass through the veil to come into the most holy place. But now, in the new covenant, we have direct access to God as we come to him through the veil of Christ. Through his torn flesh, we have atonement for our sin and we are made fit to enter the presence of Almighty God. This new and living way was inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who paved the way for us to have fellowship with God, a living way a living way. This implies his resurrection from the dead along with our own being raised to life. We 
who were dead because of Christ are made alive. Those who are spiritually dead can, through faith in Christ, be brought to life. But this notion of a living way also draws our attention to the ministry of our living Lord, who ascended into heaven and is seated at his Father's right hand. And this brings us to truth number two. We have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. Verse 21 reads, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, earlier in Hebrews 4.14, we read, we have a, a great high priest. To appreciate the significance of this truth, we must reflect again on the role and function of the Old Testament high priest. Their role, according to Hebrews 5.10, was to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. The high priest represented man to God, and he went to God on man's behalf in order to address man's need for forgiveness for sin. As mentioned, the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, offered blood sacrifices to atone, to make payment for the sins of the people to restore their relationship with God. The Day of Atonement highlights man's need for a blood sacrifice offered by the high priest to restore his broken relationship to God. The writer of Hebrews wants his Jewish readers, some of whom were tempted. There was this temptation to turn away. The writer wants those tempted to turn away to embrace Jesus as their great high priest. He wants them to understand how the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement, the Old Contract served as a shadow of the reality. In Hebrews 8, 4 through 5, we read how the Old Testament priests and their temple worship served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In Hebrews 10, 1, we read uh, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. In Colossians 2.17, this is a parallel passage. Paul describes Old Testament religious worship as a mere shadow of what is to come. Paul then declares the substance belongs to Christ. The point being made is that the Old Testament and the practices therein were designed to point us to Christ. We should see Christ in every single page of the Old Testament. We should be drawn to Christ as a result of reading through the entirety of the Old Testament. It points us directly in many ways to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment We see this in the office of the high priest. The earthly high priest serves as a shadow of our heavenly high priest. Yet there are significant differences that the writer of Hebrews points out in his ministry to his Jewish audience. He wants Jewish believers to be buttressed in their faith. He wants unconverted Jews to embrace Christ 
as the one of whom the Old Testament and the entire temple worship points. And he wants his readers to see how Christ is the superior and great high priest over the house of God. Christ is superior. He is exalted. He is superior in that he is the great high priest who has been raised bodily from the dead and is passed through the heavens and is seated at the Father's right hand, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. He is superior in that the Father declared to him, you are my son, Hebrews 5, 5. Thus, Jesus is uniquely God as he is, in fact, the very son of God. The Father also declares to his son, you are a priest forever, Hebrews 5, 6. Christ is an eternal high priest This cannot be said of any earthly high priest. Christ, the eternal high priest, is the source of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9. And the writer of Hebrews declares that Christ is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25. The Lord Jesus is seated at his Father's right hand, and he prays constantly for us. He never stops in his intercession on our behalf. He prays incessantly for us, constantly, nonstop. Christ is superior in that he is a high priest, unlike all others, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28, Christ is superior in his sinlessness. Christ is superior in that he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. Christ is superior in that his sacrifice was a one-time sacrifice. And then we arrive at Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, and the writer says, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, God says to Moses, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you in the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Speaking of Christ, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. And so Christ is a great high priest who is the mediator of a better covenant. The writer then unpacks the superiority of the new covenant in Hebrews 8, 7, all the way through 10, 18. And now in chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, the writer summarizes what we have. 
we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And we have a great high priest who is superior to all other high priests and who serves as a mediator of a better covenant. Under the old covenant, we obeyed God to be blessed. In the new covenant, we obey God because we are blessed. In the old covenant, man struggled and he failed in his responsibility to obey the terms of the covenant. In the new covenant, Jesus displays perfect obedience on our behalf and his obedience is then applied to us. The old covenant was a two-way agreement in which man's obedience is critical to garner God's favor, God's blessings. The new covenant is a one-way agreement in which God, through the blood of his son, forgives our sin once and for all, and he clothes us in his righteousness and transforms us from the inside out by actively putting his laws upon our heart and mind. Under the new covenant, we experience a transformation never possible under the law. This is the new and living way referred to in verse 20. The text tells us Christ is a great priest over the house of God. In chapter 3, we read that Moses was faithful as a servant over God's house. In emphasizing the superiority of Christ, the writer declares Christ was faithful as a son over God's house whose house we are. This is an amazing thought. We are the house over which Christ reigns and through which the presence of God is manifest. And the writer of Hebrews puts forth these truths, these new covenant truths, these gospel truths to motivate his readers to obey the commands that follow. So, If you are eager for application, here it comes. Truth number three, we are commanded to draw near to God. We are commanded to draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here we have a subjunctive that takes the force of a command. The bottom line, what you need to understand is, let us draw near essentially is a command. The invitation or command, if you will, to draw near is available to every reader, to every single one of you. In view of the new covenant, in view of all of the new and living way, we are to draw near to God. Remember, years ago, my wife and I were talking. I was looking from the kitchen out the door into the garage, through the, through the garage door into the garage from the kitchen, and, and, I, and I saw a raccoon pass by. I, I'm serious. There was a raccoon that passed by, and, and I told Marcy, honey, a raccoon just walked by. You know, the garage door was open. A raccoon just walked by through the garage. Um, no, it didn't. She didn't believe me. And then I kid you not, a few moments later, I saw a possum pass by. I told Marcy, hun, um, a possum just went by. <laughs> she looked at me, she said, no, it didn't. She didn't believe me. 
I don't know why. I, it's not like I had a habit of lying to her. Finally, I kid you not again, a skunk scooted by. I knew it was a skunk because it was black. It had the white stripe and the tail was up. And so this skunk walks by. I told Marcy, honey, there's a skunk again. She refused to believe me. I urged her to look for herself and she took me up on it. She walked into the garage and she proceeded to the corner where I told her I think the skunk was. And she looked. She saw. And she said to me, honey, there's a skunk in the garage. I remember looking in on the skunk. I walked through the garage door. I go to the side. I come to the corner. He was wedged in behind the table. Um, I remember looking in on the skunk, but with very little boldness. As soon as I saw the skunk burrowed in the corner, and I looked at him from a good distance, I stepped back, and I slowly walked away. I did not trust the skunk. He was a scary skunk. And I was afraid of getting sprayed. So I retreated. We are told in our passage today that we have confidence. And we are therefore with confidence, with freedom, with boldness to draw near to God. We have nothing to worry about. The Lord will not spray us. He will shower his grace upon us. We are to draw near with a sincere heart. The Greek word is aletheia, meaning true. Uh, it implies genuineness and sincerity. We have freedom to draw near in openness and honesty. We are to draw near without hypocrisy. We are to speak truthfully from the foundation of a true and sincere heart. And we can come to him with all of the things that we're struggling with. And he will not cast us aside. We are to draw near in full assurance of faith. We are to have absolute certainty, full trust in him. Full assurance of faith. The gospel is true. You can take that to the bank. The son of God bled his blood on a cross for sinners, for you and I. And then he was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us. This is not negotiable. This is an historical fact, and we are to believe this truth that God has given to us. The writer of Hebrews has argued, I would say, convincingly of the truth, of the gospel, of the new covenant. He is now calling his readers to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Regarding this verse, one commentator says, we are to draw near to God with no doubt as to our acceptance when coming to God by the blood of Christ. No doubt as to our acceptance when coming to God by the blood of Christ. And what follows in our passage as we continue is a perfect tense participle, having our hearts sprinkled clean. 
This speaks of a past event with continual results. It is in the passive voice. This is something that has happened to us. We did not sprinkle ourselves, but Christ has sprinkled us. We are commanded to draw near with sincerity of heart in full assurance of faith on the basis that we have had our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, according to this verse. In Hebrews 9.9, we're told that the gifts and sacrifices, Old Testament temple worship, cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. And the only solution to an evil conscience is the blood of Jesus, our great high priest. Hebrews 9.14, the writer says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And do we have a conscience problem? Christ is the solution. The blood of Jesus cleanses us through and through from the inside out. Every single vile and wicked thought, every wrong word spoken, every evil deed is cleansed by the blood of Christ. A clean heart paves the way for godly behavior. When the inside of the cup is clean, that will be reflected in behavior. The writer continues with another perfect participle, having our bodies washed with pure water. Because our bodies have been washed, we should feel the freedom to draw nearer to God. But what does having our bodies washed with pure water mean? Commentators differ in their interpretation. Some understand this as imagery taken from the sacrificial ceremonies of the Old Covenant, where blood was sprinkled as a sign of cleansing, and the priests were continually washing themselves and the sacred vessels in basins of clear water. John MacArthur says, being washed with pure water does not refer to Christian baptism, but to the Holy Spirit purifying a person's life by means of the word of God. And MacArthur goes on to say, this is purely a new covenant picture. Paul to the Ephesians in 5.25 to 26 describes the washing of water with the word. And in Titus 3.5, he says, we're saved by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so MacArthur says, being washed with pure water is language that employs old covenant language to communicate the Holy Spirit's purifying power in a person's life by means of the word of God. Okay, but there are others who do see a reference to baptism in which a person is ceremoniously immersed in water as a way of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ Baptism pictures outwardly what Christ has or is doing inwardly. Those who come to faith in Christ will respond in obedience to the Lord by undergoing water baptism. Either way, the point remains the same. We are to draw near to God because we are saved by the blood of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you today, do you draw near to God? Are you taking advantage of your privilege to commune with the Lord 
in prayer. Perhaps you are here and you have yet to come all the way over to faith in Christ. And part of the purpose of Hebrews is to convince the reader of the truth of the gospel and then compel him to draw near to God in prayer, to receive mercy and to find help in his time of need. If you have yet to come to Christ, I encourage you today, now, acknowledge your sin and in faith, believe in Christ that he bled his blood on a cross for you and draw near to him, crying out for help. He will help you. I would be willing to bet my life on it. There's a second command that we are being called to obey, and this brings us to truth number four. We are commanded to hold fast to the gospel. There's other ways to say it, but I've chosen to say it this way. Verse 23 reads, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is present tense, active voice. At all times, we are to hold fast. Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple. Persecution has already broken out. In Hebrews 13.3, the readers were told to remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Persecution was a real threat, and they were being called in the face of the threat to hold fast. We must cling to the gospel. Holding fast implies not, never letting go, never letting go. The hymn writer says, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Brothers and sisters, we are to cling to Christ. The writer is calling us to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In counseling, there are times when I tell believers who struggle with their assurance of salvation to cling to Christ, cling to Christ. I present Christ and I urge them to cling to him. Our attitude should be that I will cling so tightly that if I were to be cast into hell, then Christ would come with me. I am not letting go. He is my only hope and I will not let go of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God, if you cast me to hell, he's going there with me because I'm not letting go. He's my only hope. And you know what? God will accept us into his presence on the basis that Christ has satisfied his wrath. The confession of our hope may be a reference to when the readers first professed faith in Christ, when they first made their confession in the presence of many witnesses. We see Paul telling Timothy uh, this in 1 Timothy 6.12, when he urges the young pastor, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting those who have professed faith to hold fast their confession of hope, to hold fast to the Christ that they have hoped in. The hope we have anchors our soul. Hebrews 6, 19, we read, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Christ has entered as a forerunner for us. Our hope in Christ anchors us. It prevents us from crashing into the shore. We may get roughed up a bit, but we will weather the storm by the grace of God. We are told uh, we are to hold fast without wavering. We are to be unmoved from the hope that we have in Christ. And the writer gives reason for us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Listen to what he says. For he who promised is faithful. He brings to our attention the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. This is a game changer. He is faithful to his promises. We can trust in him. The book of Hebrews underscores, it highlights the faithfulness of God. The book serves as a promise kept. The old covenant is a shadow of the reality that we have in Christ. The Old Testament points with promise to Christ. Hebrews is an apologetic that God has cashed in on his promise. He said that by her seed, the serpent would be crushed. And guess what? Christ came into this world and he has crushed the head of the serpent. He is the, he, he, he is the great high priest of a new and better way, a new covenant. The fact that our Lord is faithful is a game changer. We can trust in him. So think about the promises of God. Think about the words of Christ. Think about what he has said to you and believe because he who promised is faithful. Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me all who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, this is Christ speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. Right now, as I speak, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, future, but he has in the past already passed out of death into life. These are promises brothers and sisters, that we can sink our teeth into, we can believe in them, and we can know with certainty based upon the promises of God that we are secure in him. John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He will not because he cannot cast you out. Because he has secured your salvation through his own blood, you need but just come to him in your brokenness, in your sin, in your need, and you will find mercy and help in your time of need. You can take that one to the bank. It is totally true. It is to be believed. He who promised is faithful. These are just a few verses. He who began the good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. All things work together for good to those who love God. These are but a few promises that God has made to his people. He's a faithful God. He has never given us any reason not to trust in him. And so we're commanded to draw near. We are commanded to hold fast the gospel. As we ground ourselves in the gospel, we are then positioned to be a blessing to others. And this brings us to truth number five. Truth number five. We are commanded to think about others, to encourage them. 
Okay, on the other side of us being grounded in Christ, being grounded in a new covenant, being confident in him, you know, um, being saved by his grace through his blood, you know, being in this new and, and, and living way on the basis of what we have in him. We have boldness to enter. Uh, we have a great high priest. You know, we're being commanded to, to draw near to him and to hold fast our confession. And with these things in mind, we come to verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Part of what's going on here is the writer is concerned about those who might apostatize from the faith. As we look at this verse, let us consider is present tense, active voice. This is something we are called to do. We are commanded to consider, to take notice of, to observe, to give thought to, to contemplate how to stimulate one another. Stimulate comes from a word that means to provoke. Uh, the point is that we, all of us, are to think about others as to how we might provoke others, uh, to stimulate others to love and good deeds. This implies that we, we know others. We must position ourselves to where we know others and and then successfully build them up in Christ. The Lord wants to use each of us to accomplish good in the lives of others. We are to stimulate others to agape, that's the word, agape love and good deeds. As we are grounded in love, the love of God and love for others, we will engage in good deeds. The works are the overflow and expression of love, especially the love of Christ. And if we are not already convinced of the love of Christ for us, then we must check for a pulse. If you have not heard that God in his son has loved you by having his son shed his blood for you, and you don't understand how great is the love of God for you, then then you need to check for a pulse. You need to come to God and say, God, help me to understand it. Again, the works are the overflow and expression of love, especially the love of Christ. This is exactly what the writer in our passage today has sought to do. He has brought forth the gospel Follows up with gospel commands, draw near to God, hold fast to the gospel, and now consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The Apostle Paul declares to Timothy, the young pastor in 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, the goal of our instruction is love, agape love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And all of that flows straight from the source of the gospel. And so this is what Paul to Timothy says is his goal. This is the very thing the writer of Hebrews is seeking to accomplish with his readers. Uh, this verse serves as an antidote to apostasy. The writer is concerned about 
folks who perhaps might apostatize from the faith. We should be on the lookout for those in danger of drifting away. And we ought to think about ways that we can stimulate them to love the love of Christ and out of the overflow of that to good deeds. The ultimate good deed is to embrace Christ by faith, to be willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And as we know, there were those who were suffering, being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Hebrews chapter 11, the writer outlines some of that. He talks about how that there were some who have been sawn in two, you know. He says, of such men, the world was not worthy. Again, we should be on the lookout for those in danger of drifting away. Think about ways to stimulate them to love good deeds. And again, the ultimate good deed is faith, being willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, to refuse to turn away from the Lord. And as we see in Hebrews 12, 1, 2, to, to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds is best accomplished in community. Unfortunately, there were some drifting away from the faith who were in the habit, in the habit of forsaking the assembling together. The word forsaking speaks of leaving behind, desertion, total rejection. And this is a clear indicator of apostasy. There are those who have apostatized. And, and the writer is concerned about that, and he's concerned that, you know, none of his readers would follow in their path. Genuine believers have a love for one another that is expressed in the desire as well as commitment to gather. First John, John tells us he who is born of God loves the brethren. So you just love to be together with the people of God. The people of God must be on the lookout for one another, and this does include, I believe, being on the lookout for unconverted believers who may, in the end, turn away from Christ. We are to encourage one another. The word is parakaleo, by the power of the Spirit, we are to come alongside others and encourage them in the faith, and we are to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. What a blessed thought. The day is drawing near. The day of Christ's return is close. He will return someday. He will establish his earthly reign. And this thought should motivate us in our commitment to Christ. For the Hebrew readers facing persecution, the return of Christ proved an additional encouragement to persevere. This is the very thing the writer of Hebrews is seeking to do throughout his letter and through the verses that we have looked at today. He wants to encourage them. Let us then follow his example by encouraging one another with gospel truth and gospel application. We have direct access to the throne of God by the blood of Christ. We have a great high priest. We are commanded to draw near to God. We are commanded to hold fast to the gospel. 
and we are commanded to think about the spiritual well-being of others and to build one another up in the most holy faith. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for directing our attention to you. We thank you, Jesus, our great high priest who has entered into the heavens and who is seated at the right hand and who lives forever to make intercession for us. We thank you, great high priest, that by your blood our sins have been atoned for and we have freedom to come to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in taking advantage of the privilege that is ours. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who has not trusted in you, there may be some, Lord, who are here and they believe, but they have yet to experience the new birth. Lord, I pray that you would bring them all the way over to faith in Christ. Cause them to be born again. Let them now, Lord, trust in you. Open their eyes and open their ears. Let them see you. Let them hear you, Lord, speak to them. And let them, Father, respond to you in faith, fully trusting, fully knowing, being fully persuaded of you. Grant assurance of salvation, Lord, to those that are here who struggle with assurance. Let them know, Lord, that on the basis of you, the great high priest who shed your blood, that, Lord, they have redemption, they have forgiveness for sin, they can approach your throne of grace, and that, Lord, when we come to you, when they come to you, you will in no wise cast out. Lord, bring confidence, bring boldness, Let us be free to to come to you. Let us be open. Let us be transparent. Let us be broken at your throne of grace. And let us speak freely and plainly without hypocrisy to you. And let us experience the washing, the cleansing, the sanctification that you want to give to us. Let us experience, Lord, being clothed in your own righteousness, you, the perfect one without sin, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. You bled your blood, Lord, on the cross. And then you entered into the heavens and took your seat. To you alone, Lord, belongs all the glory. To you alone, Lord, all the praise. Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. We draw near to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.